0: It costs the British taxpayers 30 grand a year to detain a person in immigration detention. Thousands of people are held in prison-like conditions after completing their debt to society or never committing a crime at all. How can we claim to uphold human rights while also detaining people indefinitely? There has to be a better way. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan and this is Justice Focus. Today's guest is Bella Sankey. After gaining her law degree from the University of Cambridge, Bella has worked for several justice and human rights-based NGOs. She spent more than eight years as the Director of Policy at Liberty, the National Council for Civil Liberties, and also worked as Deputy Director of Reprieve, an international human rights legal action charity focused on the death penalty, state-sponsored assassinations, and other extreme human rights abuses. Today, and since 2018, Bella has been the Director of Detention Action, an NGO focused on ending indefinite immigration detention and advocating for more community-based alternatives. Bella, welcome to Justice Focus.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. I hope you and your teams are all well. How has the transition been to working from home for everyone?
1: Yeah, I mean, full credit to the detention action team. Uh, We're a small team and we do a lot of frontline work supporting people in immigration detention centres and we have a project working with people um, as an alternative to detention, a community-based project supporting people in the community. So a lot of our work is obviously very person-centred and and, and normally involves a lot of face-to-face contact.
0: Great, thank you for that. And I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about some of those projects and how you've been able to adjust in light of the pandemic. But before we get to that, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what we mean by immigration detention and how this is different to detention in criminal justice settings that people are more used to hearing about.
1: Sure, let's start at the beginning. <laughs> um, so so immigration detention is civil detention. It's a completely separate system to um, the criminal justice system and Uh, detention and imprisonment for criminal justice reasons. Mm. It's all about enforcing our immigration system. And it is a phenomenon that has really grown first in the shadows. And I think in recent years, more on the radar, Mm. but uh, we've detained people in this country for a long time. Back in the 1990s, we were detaining a few hundred people a year in immigration detention. Mm. Um, But the use of Detention has really exploded and really mushroomed um, in the last 20 years. Um, and so we now detain every year around, on average, 25,000 people in immigration detention. Wow. The thing that's most staggering about our system and really puts us out of step with other European countries in particular is that we have no time limit Mm. on immigration detention and and a lot of people are really shocked to hear that actually because we are the country of Magna Carta and of giving importance to the value of liberty and due process Mm. and all of these really fundamental values and the way that restrictions on liberty work in other spheres so in the criminal justice sphere as you mentioned um or in in the mental health sphere there are safeguards around the use of detention and there are set out in law um you know hard-edge protections that mean people can't be detained indefinitely yeah but in our immigration system there is none of that uh, so there is no time limit on how long someone can be in detention And we know from our bitter experience that people are routinely detained for exceptionally long periods. So days, weeks, months, years. Um, I've actually just had sight of the results of some freedom of information requests that um, one of my colleagues, a a partner NGO, medical justice, um, put in. And uh, the results of that show that at the end of last year, at the end of 2009, there was someone who had been in detention for over a thousand days in well, immigration detention. Yeah, And it's shocking that there's no time limit. And it's shocking also because this is, this is, as I say, a civil detention power. Mm. It's, it's there purely for the administrative convenience of the Home Secretary. Mm. Uh, and it's principally meant to be about removing people from the country. So the idea being that uh, as a last resort, Uh, where the state is trying to forcibly remove someone, they may need to detain them um, for a short period. That's all it's meant to be when removal is realistic and when it's imminent. But that's not how the power is being used. It's not been used like that um, ever. Hmm. And it's really problematic, particularly given that the numbers of people that we're talking about um, that are left in this really agonizing limbo uh, for, for, for such long periods.
0: Yeah. And so it's, you mentioned administrative detention. I think a, a lot of people don't realise there's groups of people who haven't necessarily committed a crime at all, but it's the fact they may have overstayed their visa. Would you say they're still treated as if they had committed a, a criminal offence?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. Um, and people that are in detention... Um, who have been in prison, people Mm. that have committed offenses, actually one of the things that we get told most frequently is that it's worse than prison and they feel as though they're being treated worse um, than than any uh, criminal sentence that they served. Uh, Detention centers generally look and feel like high security prisons. Mm. And there is, I think, something about the not knowing, something about detention's indefinite nature that acts as a mental torture yeah. uh, that's how it's described to us so frequently and time and time again you know people say in prison at least you're counting down to a date and you can plan your life and, and you can you can have some hope that you're going to be released and that you're going to uh, you know ha- have life after prison but in detention it's the, it's the not knowing that i think is so unbearable and and we know that um many people in detention are vulnerable anyway before Mm. they're detained and there is really high instances of people with mental health uh, conditions in detention but we also know that many people's mental health seriously deteriorates particularly after the one month period Mm. and as a result we see self-harm levels are incredibly high suicide attempts are incredibly regular and, and, yeah, the, the, the mental pressure and the mental torture that is put on people under
0: this system is really inexcusable. Yeah. I think the realities of the situation are, are very different to what a lot of people imagine in terms of, you know, if you've completed a prison sentence, people presume that people will then automatically be released. And I know from when I used to work in the prison service at HMP Wilmer Scrubs, there were some people there who had finished their sentence, but... For whatever reason, the government couldn't be sure which country the person was from. And so that person had spent months and months, I think it was over a year, in prison. Your organisation works both in specific immigration centres, but also then going into prisons where people are held beyond their sentence as well. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that that is absolutely right. And I'm really glad that you've asked about people being held in prisons, Mm. because this is one part of detention that is often overlooked yeah. um, but it's really important as you say at any one time there are hundreds of people being detained under immigration powers in prisons and held right across the prison estate uh, so so in hundreds of different prisons uh, there will be people being held under immigration powers yeah and you know these people are i think served even more poorly than those in immigration detention centres. Uh, there is very little information. People are not given access, you know, regular access to lawyers to try and um, progress their immigration cases or to try and apply for bail. People are incredibly cut off and isolated. It's a tragedy. It's 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 a ter- really, really terrible situation, but mm. as I say there has been very little attention given to it. my organization as you say um, supports people in held under immigration powers in London prisons and we actually go into HMP Pentonville mm. during normal times um every month or so to to, to run clinics and workshops there but that 's you know just a very small part of of this picture mm. um, and much more needs to be done to fundamentally change this system there is no Justification for holding people past the end of their criminal sentence, whether mm. in prison or in detention.
2: Mm.
1: Often, as you highlighted, um, it's being done because there are delays in receiving travel documents or determining where you know what somebody's nationality is. Yeah. Uh, all of these administrative tasks that that should not justify taking away somebody's liberty for such prolonged periods of time. The system is really flawed and it needs really
0: radical uh, reform. And could you tell us a little bit about the realities of the immigration centres that you work in? Are families allowed to stay together? Do people have access to basic materials? And is it a similar thing to what people imagine a prison would look like?
1: It's very much like a prison. Things are acutely terrible at the present time with the covid virus Uh, there have been confirmed cases in detention Hmm. and we have heard from countless clients across the detention estate that they are not being given access to basic necessities like soap hand sanitizer cleaning materials people are feeling desperate they're feeling very afraid Um, we know that people with covid comorbidities continue to be detained. People also that the Home Office has accepted are what's known as adults at risk Mm. uh, because of particularly acute vulnerabilities continue to be detained. And as I say, the picture is very, very grim. I don't think there's any way of making indefinite detention humane. Uh, But at the moment, the government is failing even in, as I say, those basic Uh, necessities and essentials giving people the the products and the the soap that they need to you know follow the government's advice Mm. when it comes to hand washing and and keeping themselves clean and hygienic Uh, and there's absolutely no excuse for that Um, it's a dire situation Uh, according to the clients that we're speaking to it's deteriorating because people are feeling increasingly frustrated and afraid
2: yeah.
1: Um, you asked in particular about the f- situation with families. And the reality is that there is massive sam- family separation as a result of detention policies. Mm. You know, many people in detention have families in the UK. They have British citizen children. Yeah. Lots of them have been in the UK since they were themselves children. To all intents and purposes, um, a large swathe of the people in detention are British and they feel British. Mm. But they are banged up for these exceptionally long periods of time facing an uncertain future facing potential deportation uh, and separated from loved ones completely cut off at the moment there are no visits to detention um, and so people are not able to keep in touch with families easily detainees are meant to have access to phones but notoriously at a large number of the centres phone signal is incredibly poor and people really struggle to be able to to speak to loved ones on the outside world um so yeah the this, this situation is bleak always and particularly bleak um and precarious at the moment for people
0: yeah and i know there are international standards like the nelson mandela rules which talk about access to basic health care access to contact with the outside world these kind of things and the government Any government agency has a duty of care to the people under their care. And so what what do the government say when reports and organisations like you show so obviously that we as a state are are failing thousands of people?
1: The government um, traditionally sort of just relies on platitudes. It doesn't engage with the detail of criticism uh, it also quite perniciously often seeks to smear those in detention. Uh, so you'll see often government referring to people as um, foreign national foreign national offenders. Uh, that people that are detained are high risk and at risk of you know um, harming the public, mm. um, and that's a really inaccurate portrayal of the detention estate, Uh, there are a small number of people in detention that have committed serious offences, but the majority of people in detention have not committed offences. And um, there are a huge number of people that are highly vulnerable um, because they are victims of torture, they are victims of trafficking, um, there are a huge number of asylum seekers in detention. And the other thing that the government doesn't um, face up to and doesn't accept is that often there is overlap. Um, So it's possible that someone may be a highly vulnerable individual that has experienced extreme persecution and they may have also um, committed an offence. And that is the reality. You often can't put people into these different categories and and have bright red lines uh, between people's experience and, and, and who they are. And the government doesn't engage with that really at all. Mm. In fact, just yesterday there was a report out by the Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration into immigration detention, and in particular the government's handling of, of vulnerable people. And he, and he uh, has produced a pretty damning report. You know, one in a succession of damning reports about the government's ac- actions and, and and policies and uh, approach in these cases. Mm. The only thing that the government really is forced to respond to in this sphere is um, litigation and and public and parliamentary pressure
0: as well. So they're kind of reacting to when people are complaining through litigation rather than proactively trying to improve the situation, in your opinion.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I'll give you some examples. Um, uh, Earlier this year, We were forced to bring litigation when it became clear to us that at the Heathrow Detention Centres, the two centres there, Harmonsworth and Colnebrook, where we have a lot of clients, Um, The phone mast uh, was completely down, the O2 phone mast. And so I mentioned earlier phone signal problems that are routine. Mm. Um, On this occasion, people were just not able to make any contact with the outside world and so weren't able um, to access legal advice, which, of course, is fundamental if Mm -hmm. you're facing forcible removal.
2: Yeah.
1: And it became apparent that the Home Office was not responding to this properly. Uh, So we brought litigation seeking an injunction against removals for people in in this situation. And we were successful um, in the High Court. And our case was upheld in the Court of Appeal as well. And what was clear when we saw the disclosure in that case was that the government had been well aware of the problems with phone signal from mid-January. But for almost a month, they Mm -hmm. did little or nothing to address the issue until we issued our pre-action letter. And then there was a last minute scramble to try and get alternative SIM cards and to offer these to people. But even then, um, what they did fell so far short of what was required. Um, according to their own policy. So, you know, this was litigation brought on the basis that there is home office policy that says people need access to lawyers mm. in that in that removal window, um, that, that three or five day period before they're going to be removed. Um, so we were holding them to account for their own policy. The efforts that they made were so half-hearted and so non-comprehensive that we were successful in court. But I, I use that as an example of how uncaring, uninterested, uh, you know, prepared to accept unlawful treatment of the people that they're detaining unless they are challenged.
0: Mm. Do you think they they have that attitude because they want to invest limited resources in other areas and it just falls down sort of the hierarchy of what they see as need? Or the, I'm trying to understand, because I'm, I'm sure those people aren't evil people with bad intentions and yet they are failing so badly against their own guidelines. And so do they offer any kind of defence to the situation? I'm trying to see it from the other side as far as possible.
1: Very little. And I I think the problem with the Home Office, I mean, you could write reams on this, but Mm. I mean, there has been, I think, in this country, an arms race to be tough and to talk tough and to get tough on Mm. immigration per se uh, for a really long time. And it started with the scapegoating of asylum seekers in the new Labour years. Mm. Or, or, or it became kind of several um, degrees worse in that period, I think. Mm. In 2010, when the coalition took power, you know, it became very much a kind of a government priority. And, you know, Theresa May is all over the public record, not just with her hostile environment, but her, you know, citizens of nowhere speech. Yeah. you know that this really kind of pointed political attack on migration on the movement of people on migrants in general and all of that i think has influenced um, a culture within the home office over several decades which is a culture that has essentially dehumanized people that are caught up in the immigration system mm-hmm. And it's turned the department into a robotic department that is unable to really look beyond statistics and figures. A department that, remember, for many years was struggling to meet an impossible immigration target that was set by the Conservative government.
0: And they denied that there was a target at all for a while. Is that right?
1: <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they, they, had, they had their overarching target for mm-hmm. trying to bring immigration numbers down. They then, as you say, I think denied um, and tried to to pretend that they didn't have um, these targets for um, detention and deportation and removals. Mm. Um, And that was the thing that so famously got Amber Rudd in trouble. But we know that the department has been very target driven. It's turned um, the whole business of managing migration and that whole part of their work into, you know, immigration is a dirty word. Mm. And, you know, they, they would rather get it wrong in so many cases and and, and accept levels of treatment that quite frankly, you wouldn't accept in any other area of our public policy, because it seemed to deliver on this, this kind of urgent political priority of of getting tough on migrants. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's terrible. Um, but, but that's where we are. And that's where very sadly, the department is. Yeah. And it has got such a long way to go to claw back basic common values, common decency, and a, an approach to migration, which is balanced, uh, and which puts human beings and families at its heart.
0: What exactly. And I think that's what often gets forgotten when there's this focus on statistics and the rhetoric around a hostile environment. There's a there's a reality that humans are living as a result of this hostile environment. Even this terminology is so violent. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, people may have heard this phrase, but what does what does the reality of hostile environment mean?
1: Yeah, I think this is such an important this is such an important point. So Theresa May, as Home Secretary, uh set about implementing a new hostile environment strategy. It's found mainly in two pieces of immigration legislation passed in twenty fourteen and twenty sixteen. The whole ethos of this policy was to make it as unpleasant as possible to be in this country if on the government's kind of own version of things if you were undocumented if you were a visa overstayer you know if you were somebody that didn't have the right of legal residency yeah. but the way in which the policies have been implemented and, and the detail of the policies as such that actually it makes it hostile to be in the UK, not only if you fall in that category, but if you are somebody who, because of your race, because of your name, because of your accent, uh, because of the way that you look, if you look as though you may not be British mm. and that you may have uh, foreign ancestry or, or foreign background, uh, it will actually be much more hostile for you as well Uh, so immigration control was essentially outsourced and brought in country so Mm. rather than it just being at the border where you're asked for your papers and to show your passport it's now the case that before you rent a house or a flat or before you open a bank account or before you gain seek to gain employment uh, in all these spheres of, of of public life you are now asked to demonstrate that you are that you have legal residency These policies have actually been found to racially discriminate, which is completely unsurprising. Uh, Myself and others warned at the time when these policies were brought in that that would be their impact. Mm. It has been their impact. And yet this government is entirely unapologetic for that. They don't see that there is anything wrong with implementing policies that entrench racial discrimination. And that is, you know, fundamentally problematic. Uh, and I think tells you uh, really clearly what, what is wrong with the Home Office and what is wrong with their culture.
0: And can you give us any examples of how that racism is borne out?
1: Uh, I think the best example of this is in the right to rent scheme. Uh, so this is the scheme that says that um, landlords are obliged to check the uh, immigration status of people that they rent property to. Uh, now, landlords are not immigration officials and our immigration law is incredibly complex. So the idea that you put an obligation on landlords to make these very complex checks uh, and make decisions about who they they rent property to on the basis of immigration status means that in practice, um, many landlords um, and, and, and studies have shown that a really high percentage of landlords will opt for the safest option. They will choose to rent to somebody who they feel certain has got status and is and is a British national right. uh, rather than taking the risk of renting to somebody that isn't.
0: So they're more likely to choose someone called Dave than someone called Omar, for example.
1: Exactly, right. exactly, Omar. You've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> hmm, <yeah>. um, <laughs> and... And this is shown to be discriminatory. The Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, a brilliant campaigning organisation, has brought litigation on this point. And actually, very recently, the Court of Appeal found that the scheme did cause racial discrimination, but they fell short of saying that the scheme was unlawful. And what I found particularly shocking was that Home Office ministers celebrated that judgment. They felt that, that that you know the day yeah. that judgment was handed down was a good day for the Home Office, yeah. and so instead of saying you know we're very sorry that our policy has caused racial discrimination, um, and we will now you know cancel this policy and and and, and start again, uh, they celebrated that and 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 they've made clear that the policy is going to be maintained. So so sure. so that's the <laughs> yeah. that's the hostile environment, and I mean one thing I would say is that. The hostile environment is alive and well. It still exists. The Windrush scandals showed just how appalling the hostile environment has made it for many black and brown Britons that do have status and do have the right to be here but may not have the paperwork to show it. That scandal was absolutely abhorrent. It still has not been resolved. Mm. Um, There are so many thousands of outstanding Windrush cases. The Home Office has made no attempt to proactively contact people that may fall into the Windrush category.
0: Could you just rewind a little bit and explain very briefly about what the Windrush scandal was? Because I'm sure many people have heard of it, but they might not know the details.
1: Yeah, sure. So some some really excellent investigative reporting by The Guardian just over two years ago now broke this out into the open. And this was the fact that thousands of people who had come to the UK Um, or even been born in the UK from the generation of people that came from the Commonwealth post-war to help the UK rebuild and to work in our public services, in our hospitals and our schools, had never been properly given evidence of their legal rights to be in the UK and their status. And when Theresa May's hostile environment and the, 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 the measures that I just mentioned, the right to rent checks, the, the checks on bank accounts, the checks on employment, when all of that came in, what that meant was that this generation of people were suddenly finding themselves being evicted from their homes, being sacked from their jobs, hmm. uh, facing barriers and uh, discrimination at every turn. We know that people have died who were caught up in this mess as a result of the stress that they uh, were under. The hostile environment even brings immigration checks into our healthcare system. And so you see, you know, an incredibly, incredibly pernicious um, foregrounding of immigration enforcement in front of Mm. everything else, uh, you know, in, 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 in front even of public health. And, you know, goodness me at these times, you know, can we see the folly of that?
0: Well, yeah, I wanted um, to ask you specifically about that. Sorry to interrupt you, but do you feel that people are scared then to go and access healthcare? Even if you know right now, that's obviously paramount importance to everybody. Are people worried that they may have some yes. kind of precarious situation that means that they could be put in prison just for accessing healthcare? Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. Um, the host, as I say, the hostile environment is alive and kicking. The Windrush scandal showed that it could. Be applied to people that did have the right to be here. Hmm. And people were detained and deported wrongly, who, who did have the right to be here. Uh, we learned only earlier this week that there are still 14 people that were wrongly deported to the Caribbean that the Home Office hasn't managed to get in contact with. And as I say, you know, others have died, other cases have not been properly resolved. Um, that scandal is ongoing. But if that can happen to people that do have The right to be in the UK, imagine how people whose situations may be precarious, Mm -hmm. people who are victims of trafficking, uh, people that don't know what their immigration status is because of the complexity Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, imagine how those people feel in the current climate, knowing that the Home Office is still prioritising detention and deportation over public health Mm -hmm. Um, knowing that um, they are at risk of both of those things if they are found by the authorities, knowing that there are currently no proper firewalls between data sharing between the health service and the police or the health service and immigration control. uh, So that if you go and present yourself as somebody that's suffering from COVID or any other dangerous virus or condition, you put your um, situation in jeopardy. And and that is the reality. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's a disaster. You know, Ireland has taken urgent steps to put firewalls in place of the, of this nature because of COVID. And other European countries have, have taken much more robust measures to ensure that public health is properly the absolute priority of all government departments, including those responsible for immigration control. But our government has not seen to do that. And so I think it is most certainly exacerbating uh, the COVID crisis that is playing out right now.
0: Yeah, it's such a, such a complex situation. And People may be aware of modern day slavery and how people may are trafficked to the UK as victims of slavery and how that's linked sometimes to county lines. People may have heard of county lines drug dealing. Could you say a little bit about how these issues overlap and then people end up in immigration detention? It was, they all sound very different things, but I know that they can sort of culminate together to, to make a very complex situation that you work in.
1: I think that's such an important question. Thanks, Omar. Yeah, so one of the populations that we see so much in detention are people that are victims of trafficking and modern day slavery. Mm. And those victims will, um, you you know, it it can take so many different forms. And so they are all nationalities. Some of them are recently arrived. Some of them have been in the UK, as I say, since they were very small children. But the thing that they have in common is that they may have a particular vulnerability or they have been preyed upon at a certain point in their life hmm. um, and and they have been manipulated, they've been coerced and they have been subjected to, to the cruelest and the most awful treatment. So imprisonment, beatings, assault, um, at, you know, at the sharp end of it. Sometimes it's more a subtle manipulation and coercion, but they are survivors and victims nonetheless. The problem with our system at the moment is that there are so few effective mechanisms for those people being properly identified at an early stage.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, one of the things that often happens is that those individuals will be criminalised because they will have been coerced and manipulated into committing criminal offences, mm. whether it's um, selling drugs and county lines operations, growing cannabis, um, whether it's that they have been forced into sex work or, you know, a whole range of different elements of, of, of the underworld that they can be caught up in. Yeah. But those people will often have been criminalized, if that's the case, and if their immigration status is insecure, then they will be subject to automatic deportation. And that's how they end up in detention. Mm. They can be in detention, as I say, for incredibly long periods of time. And we have so many survivors of, of trafficking and modern day slavery on our books that are not seen as that by the Home Office. They're seen as foreign national offenders. They're seen as dangerous and high risk mm. individuals. And the Home Office will be very slow to properly recognise and release people in that situation. Mm. Uh, and that is just one of the most you know appalling facets of, of, of our system as it currently operates.
0: Yeah. And I think that links to sort of the narrative you were talking about before that's been created by certain corners of the media and certain corners of government by demonizing immigration and certain people. And, you know, we had the vans that said, go home. You know, this is there's this racist trope telling people to go back to where they came from. And then the government literally sent vans around saying, go home. Otherwise, We'll get you, basically.
1: Yeah, that's right. This was another one of Theresa May's flagship policies, Mm -hmm. shall we say. I think it was in 2013. And go home has been a racist and fascist slogan in the UK for many decades. When I was growing up in the 1980s, it was something that the National Front would shout at black and brown people in the UK. And it was, you know, the, the, the slogan of fascists in the UK. So the fact that in 2013, the Home Office decided that sending vans with the slogan go home on to culturally and racially diverse parts of London was an appropriate way to spend taxpayer money. I I still find that. unbelievably shocking, Um, even from a department that has fallen down so many times in this area. But I think, again, that is an important thing to to keep in our minds when we're trying to understand what the Home Office is uh, and how flawed it is in its thinking. Mm. That was a really shocking event. The vans were quickly withdrawn following a public backlash. Uh, But the fact that that got signed off from this department, I think, is very telling. Mm.
0: Yeah. And do you think that speaks to something broader in terms of the very narrow consciousness of government? I guess a bit of a fancy way of saying it, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there a dominance of a certain class of socioeconomic background or something that wouldn't consider using statements like that to be discriminatory because they have no real experience of that reality?
1: I think that's a generous interpretation. Okay, <laughs> um, I'm
0: trying to be balanced.
1: And, yeah, no, no I and mean, I, I think there is something in that. I think uh, you know, as the Wendy Williams Rindrush mm. report um, sort of spelt out, there is a there is a huge lack of basic education and understanding about the UK's colonial legacy about why we have certain communities in this country and about mm. the history of our immigration policies yeah. among people that are now charged with enforcing them yeah. um so I, th- I think you're absolutely right Omar I, I think there is a lack of a kind of basic knowledge and understanding and and with that I'm sure you know group think um, mm. I think it's also very true to say that at the higher echelons of our political and our legal system you know one one race sits in judgment of another Mm. and the same goes for class but I think what the home what the home office and what successive home secretaries have done and I think Theresa May was probably the worst example of this was actually quite intentional the hostile environment, I mean, it says what it does on the tin.
2: (laughs) Um,
1: Mm. I think there was a a policy there that was intentional. And as I say, at the time when these policies were being developed and implemented, uh, myself and lots of other uh, migrants' rights and racial equality organisations warned that this will lead to discrimination. There is Mm. no way that you can uh, bring immigration control in country and not end up with racial profiling and racial discrimination because it's it's hardwired into the policy. And all of those warnings were ignored and brushed away and government didn't want to hear it. So I don't think it's enough for them to say, you know, we, we, we didn't have an understanding of this and we're not culturally aware enough because, yeah. you know, the, the warnings were there. And, and I think the other thing to say is, you know we mustn't talk about the hostile environment as if it's been and gone it is it is being lived every single day in the yeah. uk the response to windrush the government has has tried to basically isolate that and say this was a problem of uh, lack of documentation mm. and and we're going to slowly <laughs> attempt to put that right but they haven't accepted yeah. that the hostile environment policies that triggered that scandal are problematic uh, and as i say you know in, in response to the court of appeal judgment just Last week, uh, they are clearly bearing down and doubling down on hostile environment policies, even in the midst of a global pandemic.
0: Okay, and so th- thinking about moving forward now, obviously we've discussed so many different issues and it's really interesting that then you've brought up about British colonial past and you know there's lots of academics that will be working from a post-colonial perspective and you mentioned how the hostile environment isn't a thing of the past, it's current and I think many academics would argue that coloniality isn't a thing of the past and it's still very present today. And so do you think part of the answer around combating... The sort of racialized narrative around immigration is to talk more about to teach children and adults about the history of British colonialism because I know i didn't get taught any at school other than sort of to be feel vaguely proud about how the British once ruled the world and not really you know how People came to the UK as the Windrush generation, believing themselves to be British, as part of a, a larger British community, only then to find out that they weren't treated the same way. And so, yeah, I'm wondering, do you think that is part of the way that we collectively can combat this sort of racialized narrative?
1: I think, I think it's absolutely at the heart of it, Omar. I think you've really put your finger on something there. I'm a mixed race person of white and black African heritage. And like you, I learned nothing about colonialism Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and and the history of the British empire in school. And that was very much glossed over. And I learned about other countries, um, histories in that sphere, but not Britain's. And I think that is the experience of many people of successive generations Mm. that, that this has not been properly, We've not understood this properly collectively as a nation and we've not told these stories. And, and so we don't have a collective understanding of um, of British identity and, and the place that Commonwealth heritage people occupy mm. in that. Britain's wealth was built on the backs of colonial um, subjects and uh, uh, members of the Commonwealth. You know, Commonwealth identity and British identity have actually been fused for centuries in a Mm. very complex and often incredibly brutal and violent way. It's frankly, you know, pretty shocking that this isn't a core component of our curriculum And I think, of course, that is going to mean that there is a lack of understanding, lack of knowledge. And then layer on top of that, the very divisive, politicised nature of debates around immigration over the last few decades. And Mm. you end up where we are.
0: Yeah. Well, and I I know there are movements to try and introduce this kind of teaching to schools and different areas. But it is tricky because I, I think people... It's, it's so relevant to the way we think about things. And um, it's such a part of our recent history, but it is kept at such a distance. And I know Nobody Alive today was part of the venture that that enslaved and did all kinds of horrendous things that was complete rupture to the reality of many people. But we are living a more privileged lives because of it. And there's still a lot of reflection, I think, that we need to go through in that but maybe that's another podcast I don't know (laughs) but um I want I uh, yeah I'd love to talk to you some more about that but I want to ask you about some more specifics in terms of what you and detention action would be calling the government to do in terms of immigration generally but also specifically now in terms of healthcare and COVID-19 and what you think they should be doing
1: sure so in terms of the current pandemic and the necessary response. Detention action is calling on the government to release everybody that is being detained currently under immigration powers, Mm. whether in immigration removal centres or in prisons. We brought litigation last month to require the government to respond to COVID in the immigration detention sphere. As a result of that litigation, we believe hundreds of people have been released from detention, which is welcome. We also know from um, the work we do with partner solicitors, uh, lawyers and barristers, and groups such as Bail for Immigration Detainees, that since our litigation was brought, many people have been released on bail through mm. the immigration tribunal. And as part of our, uh, an interim hearing that we had last month, the government gave several undertakings in terms of policies that it would implement in light of COVID. Mm. Um, and that includes reviewing all cases and introducing um, new policies around vulnerability for those who have COVID comorbidities. So some action has been undertaken by government. As I say, mm. that this action was very, very much, we think, in response to our litigation. But the Home Office have not gone far enough. We understand that there are still hundreds of people in detention. Mm. And at a time when global borders have shut and airlines have um, stopped operating, the idea that it's business as usual for deportation and removals is fanciful.
2: Yeah.
1: And so... The very real likelihood is that the vast majority of people that are still in detention are being unlawfully detained because the only um, justification for detention uh, when, when you're seeking to remove someone from the country is that that removal uh, is going to happen in a reasonable time frame. And that mm. is just simply not the case at the moment. So the Home Office needs to go further and it needs to do so very quickly. And we think in the current time, particularly given the chilling effect that detention and deportation has in terms of the wider migrant community and anyone that is undocumented, the most sensible thing for the Home Office to do is to to suspend immigration enforcement um, for the course of this pandemic Mm. uh, so that people feel able to come forward and respond in accordance with government advice, yeah. and not be afraid of of, of of the hostile environment.
0: Yeah, and of course, on a, on a broader terms, even if people are against the policies that you're suggesting, it's within their own health interest that people are able to come forward and not be worried about their immigration status.
1: Exactly, just like with human rights, you know, when when it comes to healthcare, we are codependent. Mm. As part of our litigation, we commissioned a report from an expert in public health. Um, infectious disease transmission in detention settings. And he advised us that without urgent action, if the virus gets into detention centres, the the prospects of transmission are 60%. Um, He also advised that detention centres will then work as um, epidemiological pumps and will increase transmission in the community because obviously they are not closed. There are Mm. staff going in and out and there are also people leaving detention all the time. So there are real risks in maintaining unnecessary detentions Mm. uh, for for everybody in the population, as you say.
0: Aside from the pandemic, I know that you also work on alternatives to immigration detention so instead of doing what the government are currently doing and holding people indefinitely what kind of alternatives would you be advocating for that they put in place of the policies they use now
1: um yeah that, thanks for, for that question I, it's a really important one that again often gets overlooked um, mm. so um detention ad- action advocates community-based alternatives to detention mm. and the whole kind of concept and philosophy of alternatives to detention is really the opposite of the hostile environment. So it says that in order um, to take a humane approach to uh, migration management. Um, what states need to do is put in place supportive policies that enable people that have insecure immigration status or that are just navigating the immigration system mm. to engage with it effectively. And when that happens, not only do you get better outcomes for people and for people's uh, mental health and healthcare and mm. ability to, to, to live their lives successfully in the community, mm. but you also actually get better outcomes for government because people are more likely to respect and understand decisions that are being made by government if they feel as though they're being given a fair crack at the whip Mm. so uh, that's the philosophy of alternatives to detention and the idea is that you take a kind of social work model and provide a sort of person-centered approach to uh, individuals that are navigating the system you um, signpost them uh, you allow them to access the services that they need to access you make sure that they Mm. have sufficient access to housing and healthcare and food you allow them to work you do all of these things and you Mm. crucially ensure that they also have access to immigration advice and that they uh, are able to uh, yeah as I say engage with the
0: system so this sort of person-centered approach that you're talking about is much more leaning into realizing these are three-dimensional human beings that have very different circumstances rather than treating everybody exactly the same
1: Exactly. I think you've put that so well. Yeah. And, and responding to people's individual needs. Um, mm. so detention, detention action has been piloting a project like this since 2014, And we've had incredibly positive results. We work particularly with ex-offenders who are caught up in the immigration system because the Home Office is is seeking to deport them. Mm. And we work to ensure that they can live as successfully as possible in the community uh, within the constraints and limitations of their release conditions. Mm. Um, And we support people to access services to uh, find some sort of balance in in the way that they're living, and some and and some ability to navigate the system, even in very pressing circumstances. Often our clients can't aren't allowed to work and have various restrictions put on them. Mm. Uh, but we support people to kind of make the adjustment from prison or from detention, and also not to reoffend. That's one of the um, objectives of the project as well. Um, mm. You know, recognising the particular client cohort that we work with. When the government's reviewer looked at immigration detention for the second time in 2018, he made some really clear recommendations about how the government needs to start investing more in alternatives to detention. Mm. And the government, in response to that, said that it would set up for new pilot projects. And it would look at alternatives seriously. Now, one of one of those projects has been set up mm. by an organization called Action Foundation, and they support women who would otherwise be detained at Yarl's Wood. But as yet, the three further projects that the government committed to have not been established. And it's nearly two years since those recommendations. Were made. So, government Mm -hmm. is dragging its heels on this. It's not prioritising this as a response to the very many criticisms that it has had from all quarters about its immigration detention system and you know you see quite you know starkly in the context of this pandemic that um, government would be in a much better place if it had invested in community based alternatives yeah. to detention sooner and you know we, you know we we are where we are but we would really implore the government to uh, look at this agenda properly and to fulfill the recommendations that the that the reviewer set out
0: And Bella, I wanted to ask you about sort of collaboration with academics and other people in different sectors, because I know as a, as a director of an NGO, you have to consider all different aspects and you have to get funding from donors and many kinds of things. Is there anything that you wish academics understood about your world a bit more so that they could change their work? Or is there any specific areas of research that you, you, you think would help your cause?
1: that's a really good question. Thank you for that. Um, One issue that I think has been really ignored and overlooked and hasn't been properly kind of researched or really brought to public attention is um, this issue of automatic deportation of people who Mm. are given a 12-month criminal sentence or longer.
2: Mm.
1: And this is something I've mentioned, I guess, a few times already. But the reason why we're so interested and concerned about it is because such a large number of people in immigration detention fall into this category, roughly around half at any one time. And the policy came in in 2007 in response to a scandal, kind of administrative scandal that unfolded in the Home Office, that it became clear that they were not, as a matter of routine, considering deportation for Mm -hmm. people that had committed very serious offences. And I don't think anyone is arguing that the discretion to deport should be taken away. But what we've seen evolve over the last thirteen years is that this power, which applies very bluntly and in a very blanket way, uh, whenever anybody who is not a British citizen is given a twelve month sentence, is leading to huge injustice in practice because it is it is essentially a double punishment. Mm. And I I think as many people would understand, it's it's in many ways a much worse punishment, a much more severe punishment and a much more long-lasting punishment than a 12-month sentence. So it means that for two people that commit the same offence, if one of them doesn't have secure status, irrespective of whether they've actually been in the UK since they were very young and irrespective of the, the strength of their family connections here, the Home Office will automatically seek their deportation and subject them, as I say, to a, a very long lasting punishment um, that would not be given to, to, to a British citizen. Mm-hmm. And I think I think the use of this power has been really problematic. We see every day the absolute um, devastation it causes to families. Um, there are now thousands of British citizen children growing up in the UK without a parent as a result of this policy. And I don't think that that issue in particular has been properly explored or researched. Mm. And I don't think the long lasting impact and the trauma that this policy causes has been investigated as well as it could have been.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's it's so interesting how people often concentrate, obviously, on the person going through the detention and the trauma that goes through there, but there is this protracted or the collateral damage where there's pain for other people too, the family of the people involved, the children, and then intergenerational pain that can come of that, that kind of injustice. Okay, so if there's any um, aspiring researchers, academics out there interested in this topic, then then you'd be sending them in that direction to go and look into that. That would be fantastic. Great. And thinking in, in long term, what you're hoping to achieve with your work, I'm talking about you personally, as well as Detention Action. What would positive impact mean to you? And I don't necessarily mean the log frame kind of impact that donors ask you to to talk about, but what, what would impact mean for you?
1: I am... Um hugely committed to putting in place a very strict strategy statutory time limit on immigration detention and this is something that I am and my organisation and others put a lot of work into last year we have drafted an excellent and a robust statutory time limit that would mean not only that people cannot be detained longer than 28 days in detention, but that after only a matter of 96 hours, detentions would need to be reviewed by a judge and that there would need to be really clear criteria for detention, basically remove the current huge discretion that Home Office caseworkers have to detain people Mm. indefinitely. I think that indefinite immigration detention is one of the biggest human rights scandals in the UK today. And I think that it harms us as a society. Mm. And I think that it's part of this dehumanisation of of, of migrants, migrant communities and BAME people in the UK as well. And I think until we get that sorted, we are nowhere. And uh, as I say, a a huge amount of work was done on this last year. There is enormous cross-party support for this time limit amendment. There is huge support from civil society. And last year, the um, amendment was tabled to the 2019 Immigration Bill. Um, supported by uh, a large number of Conservative MPs, DUP Mm -hmm. MPs, and the front benches of the Labour, SNP, uh, Lib Dem and Green parties. Mm. Um, So that consensus exists. The bill ultimately didn't go through because the general election was called. And obviously, the parliamentary arithmetic in the, in the new parliament is different. Mm. But I think in light of uh, what we've seen over the course of this pandemic and how non-essential prolonged immigration detention clearly is, I think there should be renewed um, vigour and momentum to continue work on trying to put this time limit amendment into law I think it's a question of when not if but the sooner that it can be done the better I think for the individuals that are harmed the communities that are harmed and and for the whole of the UK as well so that is my current mission and my measure of
0: success great thank you so much for that there might be some overlap but there's a question I always like to end on hypothetically if we could have a room that we could fill with whoever you wanted to fill it with and you had half an hour to talk about, whatever you wanted to talk about, who would you put in that room and what would you be saying to them?
1: Wow. I think that I would put in that room some key political leaders, um, so leaders of our political parties and senior parliamentarians and senior home office officials. I would also bring into that room um, detention actions clients and um, Mm. the sister organisation that we work with, Freed Voices, who are experts by experience, people that have experienced immigration detention Mm. and now advise on policy reform. And I would seek to have a really frank and informed conversation about the impact of the hostile environment and immigration detention and to try and reach some constructive conclusions and, and outcomes.
0: Great. Thanks so much for that. Bella, I've, I've really enjoyed talking with you today. It's such an interesting topic and such an important work that you're doing. If people listening would like to learn a bit more or they'd like to follow you or Detention Action or would like to volunteer somehow, where should they go? What could they do?
1: Great. Thanks for that question, Omar. So, please follow and support Detention Action we are at Detention Action on Twitter we're on Facebook, we actually have a new Jazzy Instagram account as well mm-hmm. um, I'm on Twitter and I often do tweet about our work as well so please follow me at Bella Sankey. We are always looking for volunteers to assist us with the work that we do with people in detention, uh, both visiting, uh, which obviously at the moment is difficult, but also manning our advice line and and doing complex casework for clients. So if you're interested in this issue and you want to help, please have a look at our website and have a look at the volunteering opportunities on there. And we are also, I, I hate to say it, but also looking for donations as well. So our work is only possible because of support of members of the public and of our key donors so we we want to get even more ambitious with what we're trying to do for our clients and 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 your support in doing that would be much appreciated
0: brilliant bella thank you so much for being on justice focus today
1: thanks omar it's been a real pleasure thanks for your
0: questions brilliant thanks a lot You can also add your voice in opposition to inhumane migrant detention by going to the detention action website and adding your name to the public record calling for an end to the extreme human rights abuses i did it today and it took less than 20 seconds if you like the show please do me a favor and share it now with someone who you think might find it interesting and hit subscribe so you never miss an episode cheers